The scripture reading for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 6. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning again and welcome uh, to worship here at Pittman Park. For the last uh, two weeks, we've been in a series about parenting in the 21st century. And I want to give you a thought just to uh, get us into this morning's topic. It goes like this. Your parents' behavior, not their advice, determined whether or not you would want to be like them. As kids, it was your parents' behavior, not their advice, that helped you decide whether or not you wanted to be like them once you had the opportunity to choose for yourself. Not only that, um, it's their behavior that helped you determine whether or not you wanted to be with them as you grew and matured. Uh, Right? (laughs) Yeah. I hear you back there, choir. It's not what they said, it's what they did that mattered. It's not what what they required, it was their behavior. Not necessarily their parenting skills that determine the trajectory of your relationship with them in life. So chances are parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, anyone who wants to have influence or seeks to have influence on anyone in their life, you need to understand this. Your behavior will determine whether or not people will want to be like you or even be around you. It's not your words. It's how you actually live your life. It's true for our faith too, isn't it, friends? Because here's the thing. You can say all you want, but it's how you live your life that counts. And living a life that honors God, living a life that's not just about the words we say or the words we think, but the way that we live helps us have influence. It helps us to grow respect, and respect creates influence. If there's no respect, there's no influence. Odds are the same will be true for you and your children or you and your grandchildren or the people around you. If you want to have influence on them or on their lives, you must maintain their respect now. Let's take a moment and go to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that our behaviors would match our words, Lord. That our faithfulness wouldn't just be about what we say or what we sing, but how we live every second, every moment of our lives, God. Help us, Lord, to keep the respect of our children and our peers by letting our words and our actions match. Help us to love as you have so loved us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you're a parent or you hope to be a parent, a grandparent, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, or just a friend down the street that's hoping to help the next generation learn and grow when it comes to faith, if you feel the burden of equipping a family member or a friend for life and growth in faith, whether they're an infant, a child, a teenager, a college student, college students need your help, friends. 
those who've engaged at any level to help raise another human being, you quickly recognize that just because you were a parent doesn't mean you know anything about being one. And just because you were a kid doesn't mean you know anything about raising one, right? When we leave the hospital with our child in that car seat, they wave at you and basically say, figure it out. (laughs) Am I right? And they give you, you know, like you've read the nine month, what to expect when you're expecting book, which is like this big, like, it's like reading the physician's desk reference. Like, how can you ever get through this? There's so much to learn. There's so much to know. And just because you were a kid, as I said, doesn't mean you know how to raise a kid any more than having surgery means that you're equipped to do surgery on someone else. And so last week we began connecting what can often be an awkward and uncomfortable set of dots between marriage and parenting, right? Marriage and parenting. We discussed the tension between what's real and what's ideal. We explored uh, the way that Jesus navigated that tension between what's real and what's ideal. He never dumbed down the truth to make the people around him feel better. He always pointed to the ideal. But at the very same time that he was standing upon truth, Jesus never turned down grace when people fell short of the ideal. Oddly enough, it was the people who fell short of the ideal that liked Jesus so much and flocked to him. And guess what, friends? Jesus liked them back. In fact, the only people that Jesus really seemed to be in conflict with again and again and again were those religious leaders who held up an ideal but did absolutely nothing to help those who fell short. You see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus, when he's in conflict, it's because a group of people, usually the Pharisees or Sadducees, are holding up an ideal but giving people no way to attain it. And Jesus, after a while, he just had to hurt their feelings. Jesus wasn't having it. He responded this way in Luke eleven forty six. He says, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one single finger to help them. He was saying you weigh people down with the ideal and do nothing to help them navigate the realities of their lives. But Jesus, friends, was different He pointed to and inspired us toward an ideal while helping us navigate what was real. His sandals, I love it that Jesus wears sandals. Don't forget that, friends. Jesus wears sandals. His sandals were firmly planted in what was real. But he continually pointed people toward the ideal. As we said last week, Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. Now, if you've read much of the Bible, you know that when it comes to good examples of family and parenting, that there are virtually none in the scriptures. When it comes to examples of real-life families with real-life dysfunction, the Bible is actually your go-to source. Apparently, even Jesus had uh, familial frustrations, right? You remember that scene where Jesus is teaching inside of a house, and who comes to get him? Do you remember? His mother and his father and his brothers, right? They come to the house, they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? We don't understand. Are you crazy? And they figured it out after he was resurrected from the dead, that he wasn't so crazy after all. So even Jesus' family story isn't helpful. After all, his parents lost him for a number of days. You remember that story too, right? 
But Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, they do point a way forward for us, for we who want to impact the next generation. There is a way that they point toward. Jesus never taught directly about parenting, but he did lay the foundation for New Testament parenting when he laid the foundation for New Testament behavior in general. Did I mention earlier that your behavior will determine whether or not your children will want to be like you or with you? Jesus laid the foundation for his followers' behavior when he issued a new covenant command, a new covenant command. And this new command, he said, is a new command that I give you. It's not added to the existing commandments. His new command was designed to replace all of the existing ones. Paul called this all-encompassing new command that Jesus gives us, the law of Christ, which is this, to love others as Jesus loved us. That's the law of Christ, to love others in the very same way that Jesus loved us. To love others the way that Jesus has loved us. To selflessly give so that others might know who God is and enter into a relationship with them. At the core of being a Jesus follower follower is an ethic of putting others ahead of ourselves, an ethic of selflessness. Nothing, though, surfaces our self-centeredness and our selfish character quicker or fiercer than raising another human being who comes into the world with one agenda, the same one that you did. What's in it for me, right? You remember that moment when you had a a two-year-old up in a high chair? You remember that moment, right? When you say, hey, guess what we're having for dinner? We're having chicken nuggets. And they say, no, and they take a chicken nugget and hurl it across the, the kitchen. Is this just my experience? You remember mashed potatoes being thrown toward a wall, don't you? You remember like green beans just, just shredded, just absolutely shredded and mashed down. You remember this, right? I wish I could say that people grow up from that selfishness, but the truth is I've been in meetings, even church meetings, where people are still throwing chicken nuggets and smashing the mashed potatoes against the wall and shredding up their green beans. We like to think that we've gotten better, but the truth is we're still just as selfish and self-centered as we've ever been. We say things like, if I can't get it my way, then I'll get in your way. Make your life miserable. From day one, when it comes to parenting, it comes to leading in any area of your life, a stage is set for the clash of wills of epic proportions. It's a clash of wills that has the potential to bring out the very worst in us, the fear in us, the insecurity in us, the anger in us, and the ugly in us. In fact, the most shame I think I've ever felt as an adult is related to my own self-centered, where did that come from, response to my own kids. You've done it before, haven't you? When you put yourself before them, It's this eventual conflict of wills associated with parenting that the core ethic and value system of Jesus becomes more relevant to than ever because insecurity and anger and uh, self-preservation and reputation preservation are all manifestations of fear and insecurity. They both fuel the very behaviors that drive a wedge between us and our children. Behaviors that cause us to lose influence once we've lost control. 
One reason I think it's so much easier to know how other people should raise their kids is because their kids' behavior doesn't reflect poorly on us, right? We can always tell somebody else how to better raise their kids, can't we? Because their kids' behavior doesn't reflect on us. But our kids' behavior points directly to us, doesn't it? Our response says a great deal about who and what we're most concerned about. When we get it right, we're able to keep our ego in check and our pride in check and respond out of concern for our kids and those that we want to influence rather than how their behavior reflects on us. And our response has the potential to create not only a teachable moment, but defining moments for them. You only get a few of those defining moments in any relationship. You know that, right? There are lots of teachable moments, but defining moments are few and far between. So as followers of Jesus, whether we're raising up kids or we're helping uh, invest in coworkers in our office or any sort of leadership in our life, we have to be on the lookout for defining moments where we can withhold condemnation and speak truth and life into other people so that they can grow and thrive as human beings, certainly, but even more so as disciples of Jesus Christ. How we respond in that clash of wills can absolutely mark a relationship for good or for bad forever. As it turns out, the secret of parenting is embedded actually in Jesus' new covenant command. It's a command fueled by the value system of check your ego at the door. It's a command fueled uh, by, by Jesus' very own attitude and nature. You remember about Jesus, right, from Philippians chapter 2? There it says that uh, Jesus, who is the Son of God, did not see equality with God, being in very nature God. He didn't view that equality as something to be grasped or leveraged for his own benefit. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, putting on flesh and becoming human in likeness. Jesus didn't put himself First, his value system was putting others first. It's sacrificial love. It's love so great that says, if you hate me, so be it. I love you. I will not do anything for you, but if it's good for you, I will, because I love you. The challenge is when Jesus issued his command to love as he loved he wasn't talking specifically to parents. Fortunately, the Apostle Paul comes, on, comes around a little bit later on and gives us some handles about what Jesus' ethic of love looks like in our lives. Paul's message was, and here's what Jesus' brand of love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13 is centered on that thought. This is what Jesus' love looks like. And so in every letter that Paul writes, not just 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to address to his audience, to his readers, about how to love like Jesus loved, how to love one another. So on and on and on in the New Testament letters of Paul, Paul will say, here's how you love one another. Here's how you care for one another. Here's how you encourage one another. Here's how you submit to one another. Here's how you forgive one another. And these are all simply applications of Jesus' new covenant command. Paul's most famous explanation of what Jesus' brand of love looks like and behaves like is most instructive for us as parents in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're just going to focus on the first three words of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 this morning. 
Three words that summarize one facet of how love's, love behaves. Here it is. Love is, again, not just any love. It's a love demonstrated by Jesus and demanded of his followers. Even his followers who are parents and step-parents and aunts and cousins and uncles. Paul says love, the love of Jesus, is patient. But what does Paul mean when he says that love is patient? Growing up, um, we only had the King James Version in my house. It wasn't until I was maybe in high school or in college before I got like an NIV translation of the Bible. And so when I read 1 Corinthians 13 for the first time, uh, it didn't say love is patient. It actually said charity, charity, charis, charity is long-suffering. And that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Charity is long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. But let's be honest. True love, real love is long-suffering. It's willing to go at a different pace than it otherwise would. Some of you know what kind of love that is. Long-suffering love. Long-suffering means willing to move at a different pace. I think of it this way, it's the kind of love that requires us to slow down, not be so pushy, to actually be patient. And when I think about 1 Corinthians 13, 4, I always think back to when I would drop my girls off at PPEC. Uh, we, would, we had a morning ritual, right? Uh, we would get up and we would get dressed and get them in the car seat because you always had to squish them into the car seat and buckle them up. And we come over here to the side parking lot um, where the PPEC entrance is and We'd get out the car and, and I'd say, all right, touch, make sure you put your hands on the vehicle, right? Like put your hands on the car. And so, you know, your kids are like this and you're like, I don't know if, I don't know if this is good parenting or bad parenting or preparing them for something later on in life. Just put your hands on the car. Don't move. Because the last thing you want to do when you take a child out of a car is be like, have fun, kid, right? They'll run out in the road first thing. So it's put your hand on the car and you, they'd put their hand on the car and I'd close everything up, close the truck up, shut the door, and then I would come over to him, and I'd reach down. Have you ever walked with a two or three-year-old? Like, you can't, just, you can't just be like, take my hand, right? You have to, to kind of lean over a little bit, right? And they don't hold your whole hand, you just, they take your finger, Right? And you don't then go full speed into the, into the education center, do you? No, you have, to, you have to slow down. You have to move slow. You have to move it at their pace. Because they've just learned how to walk. And they're still figuring some things out. So you have to go slow and move the way that they move. And one of the things that I love to do is I was carrying my children down to the, their classrooms, whether it was the purple classroom or the yellow classroom or the orange classroom or the green classroom, was just to encourage them, just to tell them that they were going to have a good day and that we love them and walk with them and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. That kind, that, that image is the image of long-suffering love, friends. That image is the image of patient love. And you've all done this, right? You've all held the hand of a little one and walked with them. This is what God has done for us. It's what Philippians chapter 2 talks all about, that God did not see equality as something to be held onto, but puts on flesh and takes our hand and walks with us 
so that we might know him. He puts aside his reputation. He puts aside his his impulse toward self-preservation and he takes our hand and he shows us the way that we should go. Friends, true love, real love, is patient. It goes at the pace of the other. But when we mess that up, some bad things happen. When we start pushing and pulling, I don't know if you've ever been in Walmart. I've been in Walmart several times, and I've seen a child, you know, drug out the door. You ever seen this? Or drug into the door, and they're just sort of flailing along. When we do that, it causes separation. We force people to move at our pace. It builds separation from ourselves and our children. It happens physically when we're walking because that child you're dragging is like behind you, right? You're doing this thing. But it also causes emotional and relational separation as well. When we push them beyond their speed, beyond their capacity, we separate and we frustrate. And so Paul has something to say about this. In fact, it's the only thing that Paul had to say about parenting. It pertained to this very thing, and it was directed to dads. And I don't know why, but it's because dads were good at this. In a different letter in Colossians chapter 3, 21, Paul writes these words. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't provoke them. Don't stir them up. Don't frustrate them. Don't insist on winning or outsmarting or outtalking or pushing them too hard or moving too fast. Why? Because they'll become discouraged. They'll become disheartened and they'll lose motivation. They'll stop because they can't keep up. And the result of that It's always separation. Again, how did Paul know? It's interesting that he didn't address this to moms and dads, just dads. Dad's love is patient. I know what some of you are thinking, though, but but if we don't push our kids, if we don't challenge our kids, if we don't expect more of them than we expect of ourselves and ensure that they reach their their maximum potential, well, then they might not turn out. Turn out what? Turn out what? It's okay. We can finish that sentence here. They might not turn out the way that you want them to turn out. They might not become what you want them to become. But friends, is that what you really want? Wouldn't it be better to move at the pace of our children and the people that we're trying to influence to help them better discover who they are and what they are and what they're uniquely crafted and created to do. Isn't it better to think about how to support and facilitate the next generation so that they discover who God is uniquely calling them to be? I can tell you, friends, I've never met a father who wished he'd been harder on his kids. I've met plenty, though, who have little to no relationship with their children because they were so insistent that their kids become what they failed to become themselves. So inspire? Yes. Motivate? Yes, of course. Push to the point of exhaustion and frustration? No. Compare and shame them? No. That's not Jesus' ethic of love. In fact, that's about you and not them. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love 
is patient. Love is not pushy. It does not exasperate. It doesn't drive a wedge. It doesn't allow ego and reputation to dictate the tone of the relationship. Love picks up on someone's natural pace and rhythm and adjusts their pace and rhythm accordingly. Love maintains influence all along the way because love, true love, the love of God is patient. So friends, I've got to ask you this morning, Who feels rushed by you? Who feels unnecessary, maybe unhealthy pressure when you walk into the room or walk through the front door? Who are you driving away in your best effort to bring out their best? What would it look like or require from you to adjust your pace to theirs? Because, friends, that's what love requires of us. It requires us to tame our pride, to protect our children rather than to protect our reputation. Then there's this. One day, if we all live long enough, we're going to slow down. And we're going to need those around us to adjust their pace to a new pace. It will require patience from those that you love the most. So y'all, I hope that you raise up patient children. Children who've seen what it looks like. By the way you've lived your life, by your behavior, to love as Jesus has loved. That's just something to think about this morning. How can you become a more patient person? How can you become a more patient person? Parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend, cousin, co-worker. So that God's best can come out in the people around you. May we love as God has loved. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for today. For the privilege of gathering in this space, Lord. In safety and in security. And we are mindful this morning, Lord. That safety and security are, are not present in so many places around the world. But especially in Israel and Gaza this morning. So we pray, God, that you would strengthen us to carry your light out into the world. We pray, God, that we would be a patient people, willing to suffer for the sake of others, willing to offer ourselves and to move at a slower pace so that our friends and neighbors and co-workers and, yes, even our children can know you more fully. Because instead of putting ourselves first, we put them first so that they might know you. Lord God, help us to love as you have loved. Help us to offer grace as you've offered grace to us. Help us to reach down and take the hand of those who are lost and hurting in this world, that their hand might reach out also to grasp your hand. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.